HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit wholefoodsmarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chohan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Have you ever wondered why most grocery stores, despite the chain, more or less have the same floor plan, or why candy bars are always available at the cash register? The layout of stores and strategic placement of certain items is the result of a very purposeful decision-making process designed to encourage people to buy more of one thing over another. Often, the items for sale tend to be of low, a lower nutritional value, potentially helping to fuel these high levels of obesity and diet-related disease that we see very prevalent in our society, society today. But what if these strategies and subtle cues that influence all of our decision-making processes were used to promote healthy items instead? 
Join the show today to discuss the possibility of using behavioral economic-based interventions to lead food consumers of all ages to healthier diets is Dr. David Just, whose recent paper titled Influencing the Food Choices of Snap, Snap Consumers, Lessons from Economic Psychology and Marketing, was just published in the Journal of Food Policy. Dr. Just is currently a professor and director of graduate studies in the Charles H. Dyson School of Applied Economics and Management at Cornell University. He serves as co-director of the Cornell Center for Behavioral Economics and Child Nutrition Programs as well. David's work uses the tools of psychology and economics to ex examine important ways in which misperception and emotion can drive economic decisions. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. <laughs> I'm so, gl so glad to have you to talk about these issues. Um, let's Okay, so just uh, starting at the very beginning, super simple question. What's behavioral economics? Can you give us a definition? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people have different definitions of behavioral economics. It, it, I guess, to me, the best way to describe it is, you know, it, economics comes at things thinking about how people should behave to, to you know, make the best decisions possible for their own well-being. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and behavioral economics is a way of sort of looking at how people deviate from that, how people make mistakes, uh, what you know, what sort of shortcuts they take in, in their decision-making, um, and, and why. And why. So it's not necessarily like the actual nudge itself, the, the, like the, the product placement itself. It's looking at why people make these choices as opposed to, like, the actual choice themselves or the actual, like, decision to put something somewhere. What I, I guess uh, as, as scientists, we're always interested in the why. We, we'd like to be able to predict the way people would behave in sort of different circumstances than we've seen before, mm -hmm. that, that usually starts by just documenting this is what we've seen and it's interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, what are some of the ways um, that behavioral economic, like, like the, that these, these nudges currently exist? Are there certain like examples where it's proven um, to be effective to, to steer customers towards something healthier? Sure, and and in this respect, uh, you know, there's there's a long history of this. Um, most people interact with this, and they, they think about it as just plain marketing, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. uh, it, you walk into the store, and as as you mentioned, those candy bars are always sitting right by the cash register, and you have to look at them, and you have to sit there and wait while you're in line looking mm -hmm. at the candy bars, and and they they do that because they tempt you over time, and they get you to think. Uh, yeah, you know, you sort of break down. Your, right. your level of willpower is is defeated eventually. Yeah. Um, there's hopefully you don't have to wait too long in line, right? Uh, too often, but there are those that you know where they place things so that uh, you can see them, uh, you know, easily at eye level or reach them easily. Mm -hmm. All throughout the store, they've they've placed things in such a way that they're guiding you towards certain items. And Am I correct that those items tend to be of lower nutritional value, or was that a, like an overreach <laughs> on my part? I, I guess I'd say they tend to be. Um, I, I don't know that there's any, uh, uh, you know, it's, there's nothing that says it has to be that way. Mm -hmm. um, but most, well, in a grocery store, the space and the displays, they're, they're paid for by the food manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And the food manufacturers... They're, they tend to not be associated with produce, right? right, uh, right. The, the produce is, is not a branded item usually. 
So it tends to be the less healthy things. Right. They're the prepackaged goods that like a big CPG company wants to wants to move. Yeah. Um, so your focus, um, the focus of this paper looked specifically at um, SNAP recipients and how to encourage SNAP recipients to, um, you know, to make healthier decisions. Um, why, can you actually first give us like a background on what you can and can't buy with, with SNAP? And then um, I want to know a little bit more about why this particular population um, was the focus of, of this research. Sure. So the way SNAP works, um, recipients get a, an allotment of, of money. It's usually once a month. Um, and that money can be spent only on food. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically any type of food you can think of aside from, you know, hot prepared meals. Although they've, they've made some exceptions to that now. But, uh, but for the most part, it's, you know, anything that's food. Mm-hmm. And then, and then why, um, you know, why this population that you chose to look at or that, you know, sure. that is of particular interest in uh, moving the needle on their decision-making process towards healthier items? So, I guess there are a few things that, uh, that got me interested in this. Um, one, just some of the questions that got me into looking at, at applying behavioral economics to food in the first place mm-hmm. was motivated by, by thinking about food assistance programs. Um, and the reason for that, I mean, first off, you know, that's where the government has a whole bunch of levers they can press um, in terms of trying to change the diet. But, uh, but also, there's been this sort of debate uh, bubbling for quite a while about, uh, so obesity is, is quite a problem in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And for a time, it looked like obesity was really pretty closely associated with uh, having low income, um, and and we know that uh, diets of those on, on you know sort of lower incomes are are of a lower quality, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of people who've tried to say you know SNAP is the solution, and we should we should revise SNAP so you can't buy just anything uh, you know they shouldn't be able to buy soda I think that was proposed at one point in in New York mm-hmm. um, you That's shouldn't true. be able to buy soda on SNAP or you shouldn't be able to buy this that or the other. I, on the, on the flip side of that debate, there are a whole bunch of, of people who work in, in hunger generally who worry about those types of policies creating stigma and, and uh, leading, leading potential recipients to just drop out or not take advantage of this program and, and perhaps be in worse circumstances. Mm-hmm. So with, with that sort of debate going on, the appeal of a behavioral policy that, that could encourage people to take healthier food while not uh, restricting, you know, specifically them away from the less healthy foods that they like to indulge in might, might be appealing. Might be like a happy medium between those. Yeah. So, okay, sorry, did I, you go on? No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a tendency to cut people off sometimes, <laughs> full, full disclosure. Um, I mean, what else about SNAP recipients? Like, is there, is there something different about what this population looks like in terms of their dietary choices? Or has, I mean, did, have you, did you say that, um, you know, studies have kind of more recently shown that their diet is fairly on par with that of a, you know, of a non-SNAP recipient? So there are two different types of studies out there. Um, it depends a little bit on what you're trying to look for, what you find. <laughs> yes, <laughs> or not. True. Yeah. Um, 
those that look at you know whether whether they're getting the nutrition that they need, uh, they find a, a pretty big improvement for those who are on SNAP. Um, hmm. On the flip side, they also have more access to low um, you know low nutrition items or, or junk foods, if you will. Mm-hmm. So I, I, you're getting a bit of both. Right. Uh, so looking at this study, it seems like um, this would affect everybody. And so, you know, so how does that affect, you know, this study or what, how you're going to look at the results? Yeah, it, it, it's actually an interesting uh, question. So by law, it's not possible to for grocery stores to discriminate um, mm-hmm. between those who are on SNAP and those who are not, which, which means even if you were going to try and do something, uh, you know, specifically for SNAP recipients, mm-hmm. if it's in a grocery store, it has to be something that really takes everybody in, right? right? And, and not just SNAP. So it, it, SNAP might be sort of the motivation behind it, but uh, if we're going to try and encourage SNAP recipients to, to take more carrots, we're going to encourage everybody to take more carrots. Right. It'll just, it's just like a, it's a benefit, actually. I, I, I would see it that way. I, I would hope others would, too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so, so you discussed the range of tools um, for employing um, some of these, you know, some of these interventions. Can you walk us through what a couple of those look like? Sure. So, you know, the, the main tools within a, a grocery store... People go into a grocery store, and most grocery stores in the U.S. have, have you know, hundreds of thousands of items to choose from. And, and that's overwhelming in a way, so that it, it's very difficult for people to focus very much on their decisions. And they become somewhat more susceptible in that sort of, you know, <laughs> option-rich environment towards guidance, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the environment. The biggest tools that we have are, are visibility and convenience. And so finding ways to make the healthier foods more prominent or, or making them more convenient for people to select in particular. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, you know, the interesting thing, this particular paper we're talking about is, is really an exploration of, of the ideas, trying to take from the theories and what we know from other circumstances and, and look at what might be possible here, because not a lot of work has been done in this space looking at promoting nutrition specifically. Um, and, and so we have to draw a bit on, on the marketing that's been used to help get us to, to eat all the junk food over the last several decades. <laughs> yeah, you have to, you're going to take a, a book from, a page from that playbook? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, see if we can use those same sorts of, of tools and, and uh, make them work for us. What would an example of, you know, convenience be? Would that be the point of sale, like the, the, you know, items at checkout kind of changing what is available there? Is that an example? Sure. And the, there was a, a wonderful uh, experiment run by um, some of my friends down in New Mexico State where they, they got at some grocery stores to package, um, you know, four vegetables or fruit, uh, you know, it, it's something that was really sort of convenient and place them by the by the checkout counter where you usually would have candy bars, mm-hmm. and uh, and they found a reasonably uh, reasonable size effect on selection, 
because it's really visible and it's really convenient. You just pick up the pack and walk away. And, and again, it's there at the checkout counter, so you're sitting there sort of staring at it for a while. And so you just, you're like, okay, I got to have this. But even if it even if it doesn't look as like, you know, I mean, I think a candy bar sort of sells itself, right? So is it just the, because it's delicious. And I happen to think that like carrots are delicious also, but they might not be as appealing. So, I mean, like what is the, you know, how effective is visibility really when, you know, I guess how, how much does like a taste preference kind of come into it? I think it plays a pretty substantial role. So I, I you know, I think you'd have a hard time putting, you know, Brussels sprouts there and getting them to sell. <laughs> mm-hmm. But but if you choose your produce wisely, something that, uh, that you know, would be appealing to just sort of pick up and eat or, or things that, that, you know, induce a flavor that people find appealing. Like an apple, would, for instance. Yeah, an apple, plums, something, yeah, bananas, uh, those, those would all be very, very easy to, to see working in that sort of environment because... People do find them appealing. They like they like them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have the same sort of quality. It may not be a candy bar, but it's it's often that direction. Right, right. Um, what are some of the other? We kind of you started we started to touch on these. What are some of the other um, uh, in, proposed interventions from a policy perspective that have been you know tried or suggested um, to improve the diet of you know, SNAP recipients, and where, in your opinion, did they did they fall short? So, for instance, like, I mean, a lot of them, for instance, kind of, you know, focus on restriction. Of course, there is no restriction. Um, you know, you can pretty much buy whatever you want food-wise from SNAP, like we talked about earlier. But yeah. I'm just wondering, you know, what is the kind of backlash or um, negative effects that some of these proposed interventions have had? So, so um for for those that try and bar a certain category of foods, the the backlash tends to happen at the, the policy proposal level. Um, in, in I guess the way I'd say it is, we haven't implemented them to be able to see what the what the actual effects would be. Right. Um, and and so we we can't say too much about that. Uh, on, on the other hand, uh, there have been some other policies that have been tried. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a large sort of randomized control trial with uh, incentivizing people to buy fruits and vegetables. Um, I, I believe this was done up in Massachusetts. And uh, it, was, it was very successful in the fact that it did get people who were receiving the incentive uh, to, to buy more fruits and vegetables. They'd essentially get, you know, if they went through and they were purchasing fruits and vegetables, they would get a certain amount back in their their uh, food stamp benefit or SNAP benefit mm-hmm. uh, to be able to purchase more down the line and and you did you saw an increase uh, the increase was I, I guess significant from a statistical point of view and I, I it was modest in terms of if its actual size mm-hmm. I mean it was it, it was something that I think you would care about but at the same time it wasn't something that that uh, like you know, to do shook this. the earth yeah. <laughs> well, I guess not because you know there haven't been really substantive changes made to this to this program, um, you know, in in quite some time. Okay, so so we talked about um, 
you know, how, like what, what some of these basically might be. Um, can you tell me a little bit about like certain considerations that need to be, um, you know, thought through in, in advance of trying to roll out a program um, that changed, uh, you know, that, that like was, was focused on using um, behavioral economic interventions on improving diet? Sure. I, I guess to me, uh, there are a few few considerations. First and foremost, it, it's a new space for us, and so it's something where we we do need we need the research to be able to see what what actually changes consumers' behaviors. Right. Um, but beyond that, it's it's a space where you know, as I said, food manufacturers are paying for space and for visibility, and and um, you know, the grocery stores really do depend on that. Uh, in some sense, so we've we've got to make sure we're doing this in a way that is appealing to the retailer, to the grocery store manager, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it it can't, you know, do away with their stream of income from the manufacturers that are paying for space and visibility, and and that means we we can't really you know have huge negative impacts on on those manufacturers either. Um, it has to be measured. The other piece of that is, you know, the grocery store manager is, is driven by margins, right? And so some of the food items that are healthier in the store may have relatively low margins, and so it doesn't benefit them a whole lot to to promote those. But others of them have relatively high margins. And, and so in, in particular, fresh fruits and vegetables, because of the perishability, mm-hmm they end up having relatively high margins and you can you can benefit the grocer tremendously if you can raise sales of those uh, those items relative to some of the more packaged goods but wouldn't raising you know i mean raising like well okay so you're just talking about you know increasing volume of of moving fresh fruit, fresh fruits and vegetables um, right. i mean how do you like honestly what what um what manufacturer is going to be supportive of this? <laughs> I like, like truthfully, right? So I, I in my, in yeah. my previous life, I, um, was a consultant for a big CPG company who like was terrified of any, uh, restrictions being placed on like point of sale purchases, uh, like what can and can't be sold at the point of sale in, in all kind of retail environments. And, I'm sure would be committed to fighting it tooth and nail if that was ever proposed at like some sort of a policy level. So I'm a little skeptic on skeptical about like manufacturers um, motivation to get on board with this type of work. <laughs> so I, I think certainly if you're talking about a restriction, it's just dead in, right. in the water is terms of, of getting manufacturers and, and for that matter, the, the grocers on board. Um, if, on the other hand, if there's the threat of that sort of action, mm-hmm. something that's able to promote fruit and vegetable intake uh, that that doesn't directly negatively impact the the you know the manufacturers the the CPGs you know this might be acceptable, but right? I, it might yeah. not be something they're they're jumping up and down and cheering about, but uh, it would at least be something that wouldn't necessarily harm them directly. But wouldn't it though? I mean, if they're going, if people are going to be buying more of one thing over another, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if the answer is people spend more money. I think that in today's world, that is probably 
um, not likely to happen, right? People have like a fixed amount that they de- that they want to spend on groceries in particular. So wouldn't it still be kind of like taking away from? I mean, wouldn't sales inevitably decrease of the kinds of products that they're selling? I, the economist in me tells me yes. <laughs> That's probably what's going to happen and how it's going to end up. I'd, it's it's unclear from the initial studies whether that's how it works or not. It, I I think that's what's going on is that they're moving money from one part of the store to another. Right. Okay. So it, so it seems like it would be an uphill battle with, to get this you know this particular stakeholder on board. Um, but maybe there's hope. <laughs> I'm not. Maybe I'm not a very optimistic. Person. It, to me, it's just a read of the policy environment. If if it if it really feels like this is the best of the you know of bad options to them, they 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 might find it acceptable. That's, that's, if, true, that's uh, true. If the alternative is do nothing, then then yeah, they they <laughs> probably would push back. Um, that's a very good point. Okay, we're gonna take a really quick um, commercial break um, and hear a word from our sponsors. Uh, so stay tuned. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Welcome back to Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Dr. David Just, whose recent paper titled Influencing the Food Choices of SNAP Consumers, Lessons from Economic Psychology and Marketing, was just published in the Journal of Food Policy. Okay, so I have, uh, you know, just a another, another one of these great broad stroke questions for you, and that is, um, what is the key to success in a behavioral uh, intervention like this? <laughs> That's a very good question. Uh, so a behavioral intervention has got to be, um, you know, if, if we're trying to put in this, uh, this as a, a policy of some sort, mm-hmm. it's got to be appealing to the people who implement it, right? Okay. Uh, so at the, at the very first, uh, you know, question you need to ask, other than, other than is it actually going to change consumers' behavior, is, you know, the person who actually controls the lever, is this something that is, is beneficial for them or something they would be excited about, mm-hmm. right? Which is, which is why those, you know, when I start thinking about uh, trying to, to look at uh, nudges that will be beneficial health-wise and also improve the margins for the, the grocer, that's, that's the first thing, right? Mm-hmm. Got to be something that doesn't, you know, kill, kill the, the goose that lays the golden eggs for them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so that needs to be successful. Uh, beyond beyond that, it's got to be something that's relatively easy to implement. 
Um, otherwise, it, it won't. Uh, <laughs> they'll, they'll never take the action. Right. And hopefully, it's something that has a long-lasting impact. For for that reason, convenience really does seem to be one of the the biggest. Uh, you know, convenience and visibility, like I said, are sort of the big keys uh, because they can have a long-lasting impact. Where it's it's still just as convenient each time you go to the store. It's still in my line of sight, and so I, I uh, you know, I, I think about it when I'm there instead of just forgetting, you know, about that item altogether. Right. And I imagine um, the ability to replicate is something that you have to take in consideration also, or is that kind of tied up in what you, what you just said? Well, re- re- replication, I guess, the way I'd say it is, is uh, it, you know, it's part of the process in determining whether it's a really an effective nudge or not. So... Um, and it, Oh, go on. Yep. No, go on. <laughs> I just, if it, you know, you, you run an experiment and, uh, and you know, one, one time out of 20, you're going to end up with something that looks like it, it uh, you know, solves all your problems, but, uh, but it's just, it's random chance something, something odd happened, right? Mm-hmm. That replication is really key in figuring out, sorting out, you know, this is a real effect that we should, we should worry about or, or it's not. Um, what can you actually in, in talking about this? Can you walk us through, like how you would measure the effectiveness of this kind of intervention? So, can you give us like an example um, of one of the you know one of the interventions you know one of the things you would like to see happen in an ideal world, and then how you would evaluate the success of that? Sure. So in layman's know, terms. In layman's terms. <laughs> Just, so let's take uh, you know take a simple example. You know, so suppose I wanted to see if if uh, putting bunches of bananas within six feet of the register uh, was going to increase banana sales, mm-hmm. right? Um, then the first step would be you know what, what's our our point of reference here? Usually uh, we would look at store level data uh, because that would be easiest for something like that, and we'd we'd want to en- enlist whole bunch of stores and randomize them to either have those those uh, bananas within six feet of the register or to have them where they are normally, which is in the, the produce section. Mm-hmm. Right? And then we collect the data and we, we test that hypothesis. We see, well, were, were banana sales greater um, in those stores that had it within six feet or not? Right? That's, that's ideally how you would first go about trying to test that. Um, what are examples of um, how this has worked in the past? I think a lot of the, um, you know, the work so, certainly that you've you've done um, or been associated with in the past um, has to do with uh, school meals, school lunches. So, so with school lunches, uh, I guess the way I put it there is uh, there was this desire from from USDA that uh, that we find a suite of uh, of different strategies that could be useful for schools to try and, and encourage children to eat more fruits and vegetables. This was happening about, uh, you know, spanning the time when they were introducing new school lunch guidelines, and they, they were starting to have some noise about waste, uh, about, you know, we're putting all these healthy food in front of kids and, and they're, they're throwing it away. Mm-hmm. Um, so trying to find ways to get them to, to want to eat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there we put together a, you know, like I said, a, a suite of different uh, interventions, 
mostly taken from, uh, you know, from direct interventions we'd made in schools. Some of them uh, were, were things that were based on, on principles that have been around in behavioral marketing and food for a long, long time. Uh, but, but we introduced them and, and uh, tested them in a school environment. Uh, but there again, it needs to be something where the, the school lunch manager is making the decision of whether to implement these things or not. Mm-hmm. And it has to be easy for them. And it has to be something that, uh, that doesn't break their budget because they have very, very tight budgets. Right. And so, and, and this, you have done quite a bit of this work and, and seen a lot of success with it? I'd, I'd say we've seen a reasonable amount of success with it. I'd, I'd, I wouldn't say everything we ever tried worked. Right, well, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. But what we, what we found is there are certain, certain principles that, you know, seem to have a regular effect uh, where we've tried them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, so finding ways to make it so that, uh, that the fruit is visible and convenient um, and and in particular, if you can find ways so that you know kids don't have to peel, uh, you know, the fruit or cut the fruit or do something like that in order to eat it, mm-hmm. y- you get a lot higher consumption. So so, um, wow, that's really that's really interesting. Um, okay, so switching back to policy, what would need to happen? You know, what would what would like implementing something like this actually look like from a policy perspective? For, for grocery stores. For grocery stores, yes. Sorry, totally yeah. changed tax there. Yeah, going back to the retail environment. So, you know, the grocer owns their environment. Um, and I, I would guess there would be no uh, support for the idea of, you know, the government saying, okay, if you're going to do SNAP, <laughs> then you've got to put these nudges in place. Yeah, I, I think that's probably I just, right. I think, you're, I think your sense <laughs> is probably accurate there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't think that would work. So what I would expect would happen... Is, is something along the lines of, of the government creating a, a short list or, or set of guidelines um, that, that they might recommend as, as best practices mm-hmm. and uh, provide some sort of, of reward or publicity or, or you know, certification or, or something like that to the retailer that implements some of these um, okay. so that it becomes something that's somewhat attractive for them. Maybe they get some publicity or uh, advertising out of it. Um, and it. And it also reaches the consumers um, in a way that's positive. So kind of like the Healthy Bodegas initiative that New York City uh, implemented around 2010. Yeah, I'd say that's actually a pretty good model for, for what might be done. At a larger, um, larger on a scale. larger scale, like so many things that we did at the city um, during the Bloomberg administration, from a public health perspective, it's a shameless plug <laughs> <laughs> for the work that I, I we used to do. <laughs> it was a very very active administration. I think I think we learned a lot from it. Yeah, yeah, certainly, certainly. I mean, and you know, you talk about like the soda there. I mean, that came out of the administration also. Um, Proposing a pilot program where soda was not allowed to be purchased with with SNAP dollars, so um, that didn't go through. But but I think all of these initiatives maybe got people thinking a little bit more about how to um, you know what what can possibly be done to change the default or um, with the portion size, for instance, the restrict portion re- uh, size restriction on sugar sweetened beverages or um, help encourage po- healthier decision making pro- uh, progress process. 
sees. Um, okay, so one of the things I, I am wondering about is that, um, you know, a lot of your research, obviously, this is focused on in-store um, behavioral changes and, and opportunities, um, but people more and more are shopping online, obviously, and this actually is, includes food, um, which I think is like a little bit of a um, little bit of a change from certainly where we were a few years ago. So more, you know, broadly speaking, how does this, you know, change in the landscape affect your research? Um, and can you, is it a whole other set of tools that must be employed to nudge people in certain directions? I, that's actually a great question. And uh, there are a lot of studies that have been done over the last few years trying to look at how how effective nudges are for online grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I've got to say, I've seen results that are all over the board. <laughs> yeah. so some that, uh, you know, basically most of these test by, by trying to bring up food items that are healthier and suggest them in place of, of what you might already be deciding to purchase or making sure you have some fruit and vegetable that shows up on the page that you first land on, things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't know that the literature has settled down any bit in trying to determine which of those are, are most effective and which aren't. Um, we actually just, uh, just finished a study in uh, Australia, in, and actually schools, school uh, cafeterias there um, have gone to a system where you order online, you pre-order online. Hmm. And we were trying to see if, if uh, making, you know, making the fruits uh, and, and vegetables prominent on that menu was going to change things. And, and uh, oddly, we found nothing. <laughs> really? Really? Yeah, why, yeah, there's no, no movement whatsoever. Why do you think that was? We're, we're trying to figure that out. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a, after the fact, it's sort of hard to, to you know, guess exactly what's going on. Uh, we know that there's an in-school fruit and vegetable program, a snack program, uh, that m was very effective. It might be that we've hit a ceiling, and so people aren't, aren't doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't, I don't know, to be honest. It's, uh, it'll probably require another study. It's <laughs> <laughs> so always, always room for another one. I mean, I mean, I wonder, I don't know, I'm thinking out loud here, which is, you know, always dangerous on air, but I wonder, like, if a government, when we talk about, like, policy and, you know, maybe what is an agency's role, for instance, in, in uh, getting creative with how we encourage people to eat healthier foods, um, you know, I wonder if part of the role of the government could be funding for, um, you know, for some of these like fruits and vegetable, um, many like producers or whatnot to be able to kind of not like lobby, but, um, you know, increase like the visibility of their items, especially online. You know, you talk about landing pages, like to be able to, um, fund some of that work to kind of level the playing field with what happens in industry right now. It, it would be interesting to me to uh, to think about ways to do that. I mean, so, some of what I was talking about earlier with, you know, what are, what are called slotting fees, the, the, you know, the payments that the manufacturers make for visibility and things like that, uh, it, it's a different landscape because when you start talking about fruits and vegetables, uh, you know, you might be talking about farmer cooperatives, uh, but you're right. seldom talking about a, a corporate interest that is, you know, fighting tooth and nail for 
for visibility and, and placement within the store. Right. Um, it would be very interesting to see if there aren't ways to encourage a change in that landscape so that it was sort of on an even playing field. Yeah. Yeah. Food for thought, maybe, for, for those policymakers out there. Um, okay, well, we only have time for one more question, but um, I want to know, in your opinion, so you have, you have focused on, on food in your career largely. Um, is there any other, you know, industry where you see, um, you know, industry or, or even maybe um, outside of, like, these nutrition programs um, within the food industry where you see, like, an area just, like, ripe for where this kind of behavioral economic interventions can be applied? The, the next one that I think would be important would, would be sort of consumer environmental behaviors generally, mm-hmm. right? So people's willingness to, to recycle or compost or things like that or, or people's willingness to reuse items or use them in the correct way so that you don't have negative environmental impacts. Yeah. I, I think that's a place where a lot of this, um, this same style of, of intervention could have an impact. That is, I, I agree. And, um, I think that I would love, love to see that happen sooner rather than later. <laughs> um, nice. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, David, we have to leave it there, but I want to thank you so, so much for joining me on the show and talking about um, your new article. Yep. Thank you. Great. Um, oh, one last thing. Where can, where can um, our listeners go for more information on the work that, you're, that you um, have done in the past and that you're continuing to do? So uh, two places I would send you. One is... is uh, smarterlunchrooms.org. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the, probably the, the most readable set of, of information you can find out there. Uh, but there's also uh, the, the Ben Center website, um, which is, uh, wow, I'd have to remember exactly what it is. <laughs> no, that's okay. What, they, can just, they can just look into uh, Google, um, what was the center? It's the Center for Behavioral Economics and Child Nutrition Programs. There you go. All right. Okay. (laughs) Okay, David. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support. Um, Show music is by the very talented Tim Archer. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.